And so we come this morning to focus our attention upon the Word of God, that God may speak to us. Good morning. I'm glad to see you here this morning. Gathering to worship, gathering to turn our hearts and our minds and our attention in the midst of a, 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 a world that is broken and a world that has fallen, where we can come to the eternal God who does not sleep and He does not slumber, who moves and acts sovereignly, who we can put our faith and must put our faith and our trust in. This morning we're resuming our study or continuing our study on the on the life of Saul. And as Oregon read, he has come to know Christ. The Christ who he persecuted, the church that he sought to destroy, he is now preaching Christ before those who he was formerly a part of. The people that sent him to destroy Christians in the synagogues, now he's going and he's affirming that Jesus Christ is indeed the Messiah. It's a radical, radical change. And yet we come to a timeline that is kind of interesting in the life of Paul. And I want us to spend some time this morning to focus on that. When God saved Saul, God then had to equip Saul. God then had to teach and instruct Saul. You remember that he was in Damascus when God sent Ananias to him and said, Ananias, you go. I know that he's the man who's been persecuting the Jews and has come with a writ so that he can imprison and destroy the Christians, been persecuting Christians and can destroy those Christians. But you go because I have called him. I have appointed him as a special instrument, my instrument, to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles, to the Jews, and even before kings. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. It's an important truth that God, when he called him, began the process of preparing him. We're going to look at two lessons that Paul was exposed to early on in his Christian walk. But the first thing I want us all to remember is that we're all being trained. We're all being conformed to the image of His Son. All of us who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ are being transformed from our previous way of life and thinking apart from Christ in the world and are being conformed to the image of His Son. So I want us to begin simply by remembering that God is continually working to develop Christ's character in you. And that's the first point on your outline. If you're following along, I want you to write that down so that you can remember that God is continually working to develop Christ's character in you. We've read Acts chapter 9. We're going to look at several passages of Scripture that point us to this and remind us of this. This same Paul who God was working on here, this same Saul, this missionary, learned these lessons, and it's important, I think, that we remember that he learned them and that he taught them, that he put them into practice. In Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, he's writing to brothers and sisters in Christ at the church at Philippi. They have stood with him when he's been in prison. They have joined and partnered with him the gospel in many ways. And he begins this letter in verse 3 by saying, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. I, I thank God for you. I pray joyfully. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this. He tells them, listen, You've been joined with me in the, in the gospel. You've been a supporter of mine. You've received the gospel and, and you're sharing it. And I am sure of this, that he, excuse me, that he who began 
a good work in you, that he who began a good work in you, this is the Lord Jesus Christ, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's telling them, I thank my God for you. And I thank God not only for what you have done and what He has done in you, but I thank you for what He is continuing to do in you. He began a good work in you. Now, you can't get more saved than you were saved when you got saved. When you get saved, you get completely saved. All right, You're made new in Christ Jesus. Immediately, you become a child of the King. Immediately, all the resources of heaven are at your disposal. Immediately, you're separated from your sins as far as the east is from the west. Immediately, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord. But there's this whole process that takes place where God takes what He has put in you at salvation, the Holy Spirit, the character of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit of Christ who indwells in you, and He brings it out of you in character and refining. You guys are just going to have to deal with it. I'm going to be breathing out a good bit, so this mic is a little bit different. But He he brings that out of you. I heard a, a, a a pastor speak one day and he said, you know, God has put something in you. He has taken the picture of the image of Christ and he has placed that within you. And now he seeks to develop it so that it shows forth out of you. Much like taking a camera with film, taking a picture with a camera that uses film. You get the image and the image is there, but for the image to be seen, it's got to go through a dark room. It's got to go through some dark times and some difficult times for it's fully developed. And what we see is that Christ is in the process of refining us. God is continually working to develop Christ in you. But particularly as a new believer, particularly for this rascal, remember, he was a terrorist. He fought against the church of Christ. He had a bad attitude. He had bad behavior. He had a wrong perspective. And God was changing him. He changed him at salvation on the road to Damascus when he hit the ground at the feet of Jesus. But he continued to change him through a period of time. Galatians chapter 5, we won't turn to this passage, though I would certainly encourage you to. In Galatians chapter 5, this same man is telling the church at Galatia, now they're stuck on the law, and he was an expert in the law. He was perfect in his behavior to the law. But he is telling them that the law served its purpose in that Christ completed the law, the law makes us aware that we can't save ourselves, that we can't be good enough to come to God in our own righteousness, but that Christ has completed the law, His righteousness is given to us, and so we don't pin upon our own means of salvation, our own righteousness. But he goes on to say, now, that doesn't mean that you disregard the law. It doesn't mean that you disregard what righteousness is and what holiness is. As a matter of fact, You now live by the Spirit, walking after the Spirit who lives within you. You have a choice. You can disobey and you can rebel and you can walk after the flesh. And He holds the flesh and the desires of the flesh up. And He puts them in stark contrast to the the Spirit of God and His holiness and the desires of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And He stands them in stark contrast. And He's talking to the church. And He says, don't walk after the flesh, but walk after the Spirit. Here's the first point that I want to make sure we understand. You you have all of Christ you're ever going to have. But Christ probably doesn't have all of you that He's going to have. 
Because there's this process of where he reveals truth, an attitude that's wrong, a behavior that's wrong, a behavior that's missing, an attitude of thankfulness or an attitude of joy or an attitude that we have not yet grasped, that we've not, and we're still holding on to the way that we used to think or behave in the flesh. And he convicts us and we release that to him and he replaces it with what he commands from us. And again, a little bit more, a little bit more. And all of a sudden we have all these accumulations of of transformations, these refining swipes that just continue to polish and continue to knock off the birds and continue to shape us until more and more and more we show forth the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how does God shape us? What are two of the hardest lessons to learn in life? As a believer and otherwise, what are two of the hardest lessons to learn? We're going to look at these in the life of Paul. And I, I believe that that you would agree with me that th- these are tough ones. The first one is patience. I want patience, and I want it now. Do you like to wait? Do you like to wait? Nobody likes to wait. Ask any parent who's dropped off a kid or picked up a kid at school this week. Ask any person who moves from a line at the grocery store, and all of a sudden it just stops. And you're behind people. Ask any person driving down Augusta Road or Woodruff. These are small things that make us impatient in our waiting. But what about those who are waiting to hear from a job interview or those who are waiting to hear from a, uh, a, a, a medical test or those who are waiting to hear for something that could indeed have life-changing importance? What about those who have made plans contingent upon this happening and that happening and it doesn't happen and it doesn't happen Uh, This waiting in life is never any fun. Patience is something that God has to bring out in us. Patience is not something that is part of the flesh. And yet, part of what God does in refining His character in us, in this continual working to conform us to the image of Christ, is He puts us into periods of waiting and periods of delay. And he does it for some specific reasons. Just a few passages of Scripture, because this is a constant theme throughout Scripture about waiting upon the Lord. In Psalm 130, verse 5 and 6, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in His Word I have hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. My Soul waits for the Lord. What about Psalm 27? Such a beautiful Psalm of David that we're very familiar with, where David says, One thing have I desired. If you get to the end of that chapter, David says in Psalm 27, verses 13 and 14, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Now, we don't like waiting, and yet we see that it is one of the tools that God continually uses to refine us and to develop His character in us. I want to look at one more passage. It's in James chapter 5. I want you to turn to this passage with me. If you have your Bibles open, go ahead and look with me at James chapter 5. You guys know that James is an epistle that is written to encourage people during times of difficulty. We'll start in verse 7. 
looking at times of difficulty and challenges uh, and how to face those and how to benefit from those, how to be shaped into the image of Christ so that we don't just say something and never do it, but we get to live into it. In James chapter 5, James writes and he says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord or until God intervenes, until God does something. Be patient. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. Great truth, a great command, a great emphasis that God uses delays, divine delays, to equip us, to teach us patience, to teach us trust in Him. The first thing that we saw in Psalm 130 verse 5, he says, I will hope in God's Word. There are always times in our life where we're patient. And so one of the first things that we learn is that divine delays teach me to trust in God's promises. Teach me to trust that God's going to do what He said He was going to do. Here's a quiz for you. From the time Paul got saved to the time Paul got his first ministry position, how long was that? For three, let, let, let's walk through the timeline. Let's walk through the time. This is a really big deal. I think this is important for us. Paul gets saved on the road to Damascus. All right, that was probably in AD 34. He gets saved on the road to Damascus. He goes to uh, uh, Judas's house on Straight Street in Damascus. Just three days later, God sends Ananias to him. Ananias gives him a message from God. What is the message from God? God has a message for you. You are God's appointed instrument to proclaim the gospel to the Jew and to the Gentile, particularly to the Gentile, and before kings. And he will show you the things that you must suffer for his name's sake. Here's your commission, Paul. Here's your task. And the next verse says, and immediately, after, after Paul, the scales fell off of his eyes and after he gained strength physically, immediately he went to the synagogues in Damascus and began to preach. Was it a popular message? You guys, join with me a little quicker if you'll shout something out. It, it was not a popular message. Not to the Jews. He came back and told them, you're wrong. The people I've been persecuting, they're right. Jesus is the Messiah. And then God sends him out into the wilderness for three years. For three years. He is communing with three years. He is communing with God. He is being corrected in his theology. He is being fed and prepared and equipped. And then he comes back into the city of Damascus. And he doesn't just come to sit there. He continues to preach. And the Jews find him there. And they're so upset with him. They're trying to kill him. They set a guard at the gates around this walled city so that he could not escape. They could like the ones who was who used to hunt them down is now hunted. And he goes to some brethren and they let him down over the side of a wall in a basket at night so he can escape. He escapes. This is A.D. 34, uh, 
to A.D. 37. So 34 to 37. Three years. And then where does he go? He goes to Jerusalem. And he wants to see the apostles. He wants to see the leaders at the church. And yet they want anything to do with him because of his reputation. And so Barnabas comes alongside of him. He affirms his testimony. He brings him to the leaders. And while Paul is there, he's accepted in the Christian community, kind of on probation, but he's accepted in the Christian community. And he immediately goes back to the synagogues. And he goes back to those same synagogues that Stephen went to, where he probably used to argue against Stephen, and the Hellenistic, the Grecian synagogues. And he teaches the Word of God. And they don't like it either. And they seek to kill him. So the disciples say, this is not good. This is not good. So they send him from there to Caesarea and then along the shores all the way back up to Tarsus. So we go from 34, 35, 36, 37, and he stays in Tarsus all the way up until A.D. 46 or A.D. 47. Another nine or ten years, he's back in his hometown. So we've got 12 to 13 years between the time God says, you're going to be my missionary, to the time Barnabas goes and gets him in Acts chapter 11 at Antioch. The delay, the divine delay that he takes. And during this time, we know by his writing, by his testimony in Galatians and in Philippians and later in Acts, that he was waiting upon the Lord, trusting in the word of the Lord. The first thing is that we need to recognize when we hit those delays, when things aren't moving as long as, as fast as we, we hoped they would or as we expected them to or we desire that they do, is that we turn our attention to the promises of God. To the eternal promises of God, these ancient words ever true, changing me, changing you, we trust in the Word of God and the promises of God, obedient to His revealed will until He tells us what our next step is. But not only that, wilderness experiences train us to rest in God's presence. When we are waiting, we need to recognize and get accustomed to the fact that we are no longer on our own. We're no longer alone. We have the presence of God Himself. There is no great leader in Scripture that did not have to go through times of waiting. How long did Joseph wait from God's promise to God's fulfillment of that promise. Decades, 25, 28 years. Moses, waiting on the Lord in the wilderness. David, David was anointed as king three times. More than 18 years from when Samuel anointed him till he became the king that God had for him. With a lot of trials along the way in the middle there. And during all of that time, you have the promise of the presence of God and learning to rest in the presence of God. Moses faced much discouragement in his ministry, particularly early on. You can read this in Exodus 32 and 33. As he was trying to lead the people to the desert, praying and talking to God there in Sinai on their behalf, he, he saved them multiple times from destruction. He was confused as to who would be with him in the journey of being a leader. And in his waiting, Moses felt incredibly alone. He needed to wait for the Lord to lead and direct him so that he could lead and direct those people to the promised land. When Moses called out to God, God responded. One of the things that he promised, I'm just going to move this down. One of the things that he promised, God promised Moses was, my presence is with you. You remember when God said, I, 
I'm holy and these people are not. They're my people. I've rescued them, but I'm going to send them on and I'll send an angel with you. But if I go with them, I will surely destroy them because they will surely rebel against me. And Moses cried out to God and said, God, if you don't go with us, we are not going. If you don't go with us, I'm not going. I refuse to go apart from your presence. And God made a promise to him. That was a test in many ways, a a, a validation of Moses' commitment to the person of God. And Moses learned to rest in the presence of God. Exodus 33, 14, God says, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. In the experience of developing patience and divine delays, we can experience the same rest and peace that comes from God's presence. We're never alone in the waiting, no matter how frustrating it can be, no matter how challenging and difficult it can be. God wants to remind us that He is sovereign. Here's what... The most important lesson that you and I can learn as a believer. Now, the most important thing you can learn that God reveals is that you're lost and that Jesus is the Savior and He brings you to salvation and repentance and faith. So, salvation is is key. It's vital. It's the most important thing. But as a believer, I believe the most important truth that you and I must embrace is the sovereignty of God. That we have a God who is in control, whose ways are inscrutable, that we can't always understand, but He is always faithful, and He is always working, and He is always trustworthy. And knowing the presence of God gives us the capability, knowing the person of God and the sovereignty of God gives us the capability to rest in the presence of God. But sometimes we have delays simply because we're not ready. We have delays... Because we need to give God time to work in us. Divine delays provide time for God to work in me. You remember that he who aspires to the office of an overseer desires a good thing. He who wants to be a leader. He who wants to be an instrument used by God. First Timothy chapter 3. An instrument of honor for the kingdom of God. God has appointed us as His instruments. As His ambassadors. And part of that is being trained and being equipped. Two things here, and I'm talking fast, but this is important stuff. You gotta have skills. You gotta have skill sets that God puts in you. Not only, not only things that, you know, that we're gonna get to in just a minute that develop character, but God wants to give you training. God wants to prepare you and equip you in how to handle His Word. How to become a person of prayer. How to speak the truth in love. Get glorifying God in your conversation. There are skills that He wants to develop in you. And these are not overnight skills. God does do some d- divine investment of gifts in preparation. There's no question about that. But part of waiting is being trained and equipped in the development of skills. But the bigger, more significant part of delay is where God is working His character in us. We have seen in Christianity, North American Christianity, in the course of the last 21 years, we have seen seven pastors of megachurches fall from grace in one way or another. Either be fired from their church, resign from their church, be accused of scandals, and then have those things come to the light. And that is just a scary thing for me. One of those I have been listening to a podcast about. It's been very educational and informative. It's the Mars Hill podcast with Mark Driscoll. And, and I'm not going to cast any stones. I would recommend that you listen to it. I think you will find it beneficial. But Mark Driscoll went to plant a church in Seattle. It went from a very small group to a very large group. 
In just a matter of about 14 years, they were reaching 18,000 people weekly. And there was so much good in the life of that church. So much good, solid, biblical teaching. So much equipping. So much evangelism. People were getting saved. And the focal point became shifted. The focal point shifted from glorifying Christ to glorifying the pastor. To the point where one person who was in leadership in that church said, we were going through a conference, there was all of this publicity, and we were joking with this pastor, and we said, man, you're just a preacher preaching the Word of God. And he shut us down, and he said, listen, it's about me. I am the brand. I am the reason people come. Now, I want you to understand, we're going to get to humility in just a minute. We have time. Y'all be patient. There's a reason I preach on these sermons. Y'all be patient. But what happens when you don't take the time to develop godly character in the mundane, day in, day out, small things of life? And you jump ahead and you get outside of God in seeking to please God. And you jump ahead and you get outside of God in seeking to glorify God. And you jump ahead and you get outside of God's structure and God's plans and obedience in seeking to be obedient to God. But you shortcut His timeline and you, you, you open yourself up to temptation. You open yourself up to weakness and failing. You open yourself up to not being strong enough for the task that you're seeking to undertake. Divine delays provide time for God to work in you, not only to develop skills, but to develop His character. Paul waited three years in the day. I can't imagine that Paul was a patient fellow, can you? As zealous as he was, as enthusiastic as he was, his personality like it is that comes off of the pages of Scripture, I can't imagine that waiting was a joyful experience, and yet it was in the waiting that God refined Paul's rest in the promises of God and in the presence of God and developed his character to reflect Christ in him. Now, as far as this goes, I do think that probably pre-conversion, Paul was a pretty arrogant person. As a matter of fact, you see just glimpses of that in some of his testimony. Uh, And so, uh, there's a second lesson that not only Paul, but all of us have to learn. And that is what it means to be humble. While Paul was essentially waiting on God, he was being humbled. And what we see this, this comes off of the pages of of our text in in Acts chapter 9. You know, part of our biggest thing here is we... We, we are prideful people. Part of our biggest thing that God has to continue to overcome in us is that we are prideful people. Paul was very advanced in his personal piety. In Philippians chapter 3, where he's teaching the church at Philippi, don't put your confidence in the flesh. Don't put your confidence in your, your confidence in your own competence or in your own ability or in your own effort. Don't put your confidence in the flesh. He's He says, why? Because if anybody has the right to do that, it would be me that had the right to do that. Born of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, circumcised on the eighth day 
a zealot, a persecutor of the church, and I was righteous under the law. I was blameless. And yet, he says, all of that, all of that self-confidence, all of that achievement is nothing. It's a detriment. It is harmful. And God brought into the place of humility where he counted all of that but loss as, as dung, as excrement, compared to simply knowing Christ. Humility for the believer simply means acknowledging what is true, that God is worthy of glory and that we are not. So I want to go down this list pretty quickly because I think most of us have had these lessons in humility and I just want to affirm them in our lives. You have to exchange your reputation for the glory of God's name. Paul said in his preaching to Corinth, I came determined to know nothing among you save Christ and Him crucified. If you read his letter to the church at Corinth, the first letter particularly, there are groups of people who are saying, I'm I'm a follower of Paul. Or I'm a follower of Peter. Or I'm a follower of Apollos. And one group that said, not us. We just, we just follow Christ. And Paul said, you're missing the boat. It's about Christ, not as part of a faction, but because he's the one who does the work. He's the one who gives the increase. He's the one that it's all about. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Only Christ. And so it's no longer about my reputation. You are not the brand. I am not the brand. Christ is. Christ is worthy of our glory. Did Paul learn that lesson? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9, he said, I am the least of the apostles. I am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of Christ. And then later in 1 Timothy, where he's writing to Timothy, he says, man, I'm the, I'm the chief of sinners, and yet God in His graciousness has appointed this task to me. So it's not about building a reputation for us. It's about showing forth the glory of Christ, the name of Christ. Humility is exchanging my competency for His power. There's something about being intelligent and being capable and being a hard worker that makes it hard for us to be humble. Because God does want us to work, and He does want us to labor, and He does want us to toil, and He does want us to be like the farmer. He does want us to bear fruit. It is His intent in us to bear fruit. However, we need to recognize that all of that is from God. We're able to labor, toil, and work because it is God who works within us, both to will and to do His good pleasure. Colossians 1.28, Paul says, my, my calling, the mission of my life is to be able to present every man perfect and blameless before God. And for this reason, I work and slave and toil through the power of God who works within me. He learned that it was not his abilities, his competencies that brought fruitfulness to the kingdom of God. Rather, it was God working in him. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, here's the lesson he learned. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. 
who has made us sufficient to be members of a new ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Paul had to learn. It's not my zeal, not my competency, not my capabilities. It is God working in me. I heard a story years ago about an elephant and a flea. And they were best friends. And the flea would often ride on the elephant. And one day the flea and the elephant were crossing a swaying bridge. And as they walked across the bridge, they could feel it shake and feel it shake and it feel it shake. When they got to the other side, the flea puffed out his chest and said, Wow, did you feel that bridge shake when we walked across it? He was pretty arrogant for a flea when it was the elephant that caused the bridge to shake. I tell you, it's hard to be humble when God moves and God works in us and through us. We want to naturally, in our flesh, take credit for it. We want to naturally say, look at what God did through me. And we need to rejoice in that. And we need to celebrate in that. But we always need to recognize that it is God who works so that we do not become conceited in our service. This was a humility lesson that Paul had to learn. He had to learn how to take a back seat to what was taking place so that God could have the front seat. Second Corinthians chapter 12. Verse 7, so to keep me from becoming conceited. How about this? God working in Paul to keep him from becoming conceited years after Paul was already in his missionary journeys and right in his middle of his... And we're going to read several verses here. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that Paul had been given, Paul anointed by God, an instrument to be used by God, given special revelations from God, so to keep me from becoming conceited, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. Why? To keep me from becoming conceited. This isn't about me. This is about God and what He has done. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But He said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I want to read that again. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, and I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Humility is recognizing that it is God's sufficiency in us, not our own. Humility is recognizing that we have no right to be conceited. What do we have that we did not receive? When God moves and God works, it is God who works and who gets the glory. Again, I probably put too many points in this sermon, but Suzanne told me I had to fill in all the blanks, so I won't do that. But I do want us to look at this next thing because it's important. Sometimes in our arrogance, we want to be left alone to do things our way. Sometimes in our pride, we want to be capable and we want to just say, I can do it from the time you're a very small kid. How many of you had your kids tell you, I'll do it. Don't help me. I'll do it. And we... 
with the attitude of a toddler to a parent looking at our God and say, God, I can do this. And God says, you can't do this apart from me and you can't do this alone. And so we have to exchange my independence for cooperation. My independence for working with others. Paul used others, uh, God used others in Saul's life. He sent Ananias to him. We saw that in chapter 15, I mean, in chapter 9, verse 15. We saw that Paul needed others to get out of Damascus. If you look in t- verse 25, he lowered him over the side of the wall in a basket. He couldn't even get to see the preachers in the church of Jerusalem until Barnabas came and introduced him. He depended upon Barnabas for the introduction. He needed Christians in Jerusalem to get him to Caesarea and to get him all the way back up to Tarsus for a safe place. He was invited into ministry in Antioch in Acts chapter 11 when Barnabas went searching for him and then finally brought him back. He was continually dependent upon others. And he learned that dependence and he taught on it so much in all of his letters to the churches. You are not independent. You are dependent upon God and interdependent upon one another as a member of the body of Christ. While Saul was in Tarsus, what was going on with the work of God? Here's here's the hard part. Here's a lesson here. I would imagine that Saul was pretty confident in his ability to speak. I would imagine that Saul was pretty confident in his theology. I would imagine that Saul was pretty confident in his zeal. And when he got saved, in his zeal for the gospel, immediately he went to the synagogues in Damascus. Three years later, he comes to Jerusalem, and immediately after meeting the leaders of the church, he's going to the synagogues to preach and teach. And the end result of that is persecution is ramped up, and he has to escape it by being sent home. What's the church going to do without Paul? What's going to happen in Jerusalem if Paul's not there to reason with the Hellenists? What about those people in Damascus? Probably there were people who had responded to the Gospel. Who's going to take care of them? What about those lost people in Damascus? Who's going to tell them about Jesus? What's going to happen while Paul got sent home to Tarsus for ten years? Well, here's the answer. Verse 31 of Acts chapter 9 says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit it multiplied. Can I give you a humbling lesson? with or without you, the church of God is going to grow and move. And sometimes we want to jump in because we feel like we're the essential one. Let me tell you, you may be the essential one for what God wants to do in a specific area and in a specific place. But what God may be doing is delaying your entry there in order to refine His character in you, in order to give you skills and knowledge that you'll need to have. And you can trust God that it's not dependent upon you, it's dependent upon God who works in you and through you and who works on others. And so therefore, get this, you can trust other people. 
You have to work alongside of. We get to work alongside of. It is a privilege to humble ourselves and say, I'm not the one with all the answers. God's the one with all the answers. And the things I know, I know, and I want to teach them and share them, but I trust God, and therefore I can trust the uh, those whom God has sent to serve alongside of me. We, we don't need to be isolationists here. We can't be. And that's a humbling fact. And so the last thing, of course, is the exchange. Humility is exchanging my glory for His. We do all to the glory of God. Let me, let me, let me just tie this up if I can. When you got saved, you didn't just get a get out of hell free card. When you got saved, you became a member of the family of Christ. You became a member of the body of Christ. You became part of God's inheritance in the saints, and you became an inheritor of all that God is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you became an ambassador for Christ, one of those to whom God has given the ministry of reconciliation. And your life here now is to be lived for His glory and for His pleasure that His name. And there are going to be times that you're going to have to wait. And there are going to be times that God's going to have to humble you. We know that pride goeth before a fall. And that God needs you giving glory to His name, recognizing, cooperating with others, worshiping Him, serving Him alongside of others for His glory, so that His name is glorified. You are an instrument of God to be used to reach somebody with the gospel. You are an instrument of God to be used to, to, to train and teach and equip believers in how to know God and walk with God and experience the presence of God and the promises of God and the peace of God as you wait upon God to work in your life. You've got a calling and a mission. You are as much an instrument of God's as Paul was. So in the waiting, be prepared. In the waiting, learn to trust God's promises and God's word. In the waiting, be obedient. Be equipped in the small things that God may entrust you with bigger things. And don't be sidetracked by pride. Recognize God's sufficiency. Now, God allows things to happen that we don't understand. Would you agree with that? God allows things to happen that make no sense to us. Folks, God's not asleep. And he does not slumber. And he doesn't get confused. And he's not careless. God is working all things for his glory. And for our good, though it may not look good from an earthly perspective. And so we're going to close this service a little bit differently today. You guys can come on up if you don't mind. We're going to close this service a little bit differently today. I want you, if you are waiting on God, to just simply say, God, Help me wait, trusting in you. I want to trust your promises. I want to walk in your presence. I want to be trained and equipped. Because when God is causing you to wait, it's almost always because what He's doing is bigger than just you. He made Joseph wait decades in order to save Israel. When the famine came to Egypt. What God does is almost always bigger than just us. And we're prepared in the waiting. And then in the humbling. Recognizing it's God's work, not ours. It's God's capability, not ours. And it's God's name, not ours. And you may just need to say, God, humble me. I recognize that this waiting or this suffering that I must go through for your sake is to help me recognize that it's about you.
and it's not about me. And it's about being the part of the body of Christ. It's not about being the Lone Ranger in there. But I want us also to take time to pray for the Christians in Afghanistan. What's happening in our world is hard to understand. But we need to recognize right now that we have brothers and sisters in Christ who are waiting and who are suffering. And we need to be praying for them that God will rescue them, that God will be glorified in them, that the experiences and the suffering that they face will be a refinement in their lives, but also will be a testimony to the world of the might of a holy and a powerful God. So we need to pray for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. Will you, will you pray with me for them? As we pray for ourselves, I would invite you to stand. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together today and to look at the life of Paul. He was impatient. He was in a hurry. And yet, you taught him to wait. You sent him to the wilderness for three years. You sent him home, Father. For 10 years, a decade, Abraham had to wait on your promise to him to be fulfilled. Almost 20 years. Joseph waited decades for your promise to be fulfilled. David waited as you refined him and prepared circumstances so that the whole nation would be established. And sometimes our waiting a year, two years, three years seems unbearable. Help us to keep this in perspective. That you are the God who moves and works and who acts. And you are preparing circumstances and situations. Even as you prepare us that you can use us for your glory. So teach us to wait. Trusting in your promises and resting in your presence being refined for what you would use us for. And teach us humility. It's not about us. It's about you. It's not about our pride, our arrogance, our ability, our capability, our reputation, our name. It's about yours. So, Father, we come today to pray for our brothers and sisters, particularly on this day, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. We pray for those who have named the name of Christ, that you have convicted of sin and righteousness and judgment, that you have saved, that you have made them followers of Christ. And because of their faithfulness to you, they are facing persecution. They are facing challenges. They are facing difficulties. They are facing, in some cases, death, annihilation, imprisonment. They're facing a really hard situation. Because of of the secular and the fallen world that we live in, But Father, we know that you're sovereign and we trust that. We know that you are sufficient. And we trust that. That does not make us glib, and that does not mean that we don't suffer along with those who suffer, and that we don't weep along with those who weep. And so we are praying your intervention in their lives. We pray for their safety. We pray for their physical safety, for care, for escape where there needs to be escape, for confusion of their enemies, for your deliverance for them. We pray, Father, that you will do things miraculously so that your name is glorified and honored. Father, for those who are not going to be allowed physically to escape, but for those who are going to suffer by imprisonment, by beatings and punishment, jail, and even by death, I pray, Father, that you will be sufficient for them, that they will rest in your sufficiency that you promised, 
And that even as they walk through the valley of the shadow of death, they will be able to not fear evil for you are with them. And that your presence will be a tangible strength and peace and encouragement to them. Knowing that they are really not citizens of this earth at all. Not citizens even of Afghanistan. They are citizens of the kingdom of God. And you are prepared to welcome them home. You are prepared to walk with them through these days and be their strength and their sufficiency. I pray, Father, that you will be their strength. That you will walk with those who are left behind. I pray, Father, that you will, in, in I don't know how, but in the ways that you can, that you will receive glory from their obedience and from this situation. You'll receive glory for how we respond as well. Father, we love you. We trust you that you have made us instruments of righteousness, that you have made us instruments of the gospel, that you have made us ambassadors for Christ. Equip us. In your name I pray. Amen.